Hey, hey, how's everybody doing? It's great to see you. Great to see you. By the way, uh, didn't George do a great job last week? Yeah, fantastic job. Fantastic job. He's a great worship leader, a great teacher. Sometimes it's just not fair uh, how people can be so talented. But I don't hate. I don't hate. George, I see your hate wherever you are. Anyway, no, I'm just messing with him. Um, but uh, this, goodness, this is about 18 years ago or so. It was 1995. And so I know some of you hadn't been born yet. But uh, I, was, I was in a band. We were playing at this festival in Illinois. It's a huge, it was about 25,000 people at this festival that we were at. Big opportunity for our band. Uh, we had just signed our record deal. And we were, uh, I was, I don't know, I was about 20 at the time. And so uh, our band was here from South Florida. So we drove up to, we were driving up to Illinois, but my wife, uh, we were dating at the time, she was uh, in school in Tallahassee with her sister. And so I told the guys that, hey, while we're going up, just drop me off in Tallahassee and I'll drive up with Carrie, Carrie's sister and our friend John. And we drove up in Carrie's car because of the four of us, Carrie had the nicest car, which apparently a 1989 Hyundai was... uh, hatchback was the nicest of the four, which is saying something. Anyway, so we, the, we get them all together. The band leaves without me. And then we set out on our 20-hour drive from where we are to outside of, a couple hours outside of Chicago. So when we left, we couldn't stop because we were going to be playing. Uh, we were going to be playing right there and then uh, and whatnot. So we had to drive straight through. So it was 20 hours. There's four of us. We decided all we're going to take turns driving. So I got the wheel around 1 o'clock, and my buddy Jason had given me directions. He was in our band. And this is before, by the way, this is before cell phones, GPS. I didn't even own a beeper. This is like way before all that. And uh, so, any, so anyway, you wanted to call someone, you dialed the rotary phone, you know, back then, smoke signals. That's what it was like. So, but the, my buddy Jason gives me literally the worst directions anyone could give you. Whenever someone gives you directions and the directions are, when you get to St. Louis, stop and get directions, those are bad directions. So anyway, he and I still, 20 years later, we're still arguing about this, but uh, they were bad directions. So I get the wheel probably about 1 o'clock in the morning, when, about, about the time we hit St. Louis, and as about 1 a.m. or so. So we get St. Louis, we get the directions, then I know where I'm headed to get to Bushnell, Illinois, which is another code for the middle of nowhere. And so anyway, so I'm driving the last leg, and I hadn't slept because I was talking and whatever. So... We're driving, and 7 a.m., we, uh, we get to this cross street, so it's a stop sign, and then there's, uh, it's kind of the road ends, and you've got to go either left or right. Those are your only options. So Carrie's car that we're driving is a stick shift, so uh, it's 7 o'clock in the morning. Everyone is asleep. John, my buddy John is riding shotgun. Uh, Carrie and her sister are in the back seat, totally knocked out. So we pull up to this stop sign, and then I fall asleep at the stop sign. Now, the, what, how I woke up was because my buddy John starts hitting me. Bob, Bob, you have to wake up. Wake up. Bob, Bob, wake up. So, and I opened my eyes, and there is an 18-wheeler semi headed towards us because I was driving a stick, so I fell asleep, and I took my foot off the brake, and our car had drifted into the middle of this street, and the 18-wheeler is coming our way, and he's like, wake up, or we're going to see Jesus. And then so I'm like, okay. So I floor the thing. Anyway, so then I'm, I'm awake now. And I did the thing that everybody does. You, know, you ever like doze off? You're like, whoa. And then you, you kind of wake up and then you lean forward. I don't know why people do that. Apparently like leaning forward, that like wakes everyone up. Uh, you know, like, man, this movie, I'm falling asleep. Let me lean forward. 
man, you are so boring to talk to. Let me lean forward. You know, Ben, so anyway, so that's what I was doing. So I decided to lean forward. But then I did the other thing. So, you know, you're, you're drowsy because you've been up for more than 24 hours. And so I decided to, we were like half an hour away. So I'm flooring. I'm doing 80 on these little cornfield roads to get to this, uh, to get to this, where this festival is. We're driving through this little town. And Carrie in the back, she's like, Bob, maybe you should slow down a little bit. And I say, Carrie, uh, what is there like one cop in this whole town? And what are the chances that this one cop is going to find me and pull me up? Literally, I had not even, the, the ink hadn't even dried on the statement that I just made before I had, woo, woo, woo. And I'm like, come on. And uh, so I get pulled over. He writes me. Anyway, it was so, it was so annoying. And then Carrie was like, I was right. I was right. She still brings that up. Remember I told you that? Remember in 1995, I told you that and I was right. Anyway. Uh, so now, but you ever have those, this is when I had one of those, like, turn back the clock moments. Like, you ever have one of those moments where you're like, oh, man, if, can I, I will do anything to just turn back the clock, like, five minutes to just fix this. Um, you know, you, you do anything to go back and erase the past. You know, you, you, you want to go, some, some people want to go back before the moment they married him. And really like, you know, and, like, talk to yourself from the future. Hello, self, I'm me from the future. Don't do this. Don't do this. Your life, you're going to be a lifetime movie if you go through with this. Don't do it. You know what I mean? Um, you, ever, you ever do that? You ever, you ever eat way too much cake and then totally regret it? Yeah, me neither. But I read about it in a book one time. Woo! And it was fierce what I read about in that book. That it's, it's the worst feeling ever, the too much cake feeling. And, uh, or, or, you know, you ever, you ever buy something and then you, you totally, re- totally regret it? You know, those of you that have purchased the shake weight, you know what I'm talking about? You're like, what was I thinking? You know what I mean? Some of you are going to Google that later. I don't recommend it, but uh, anyway, uh, moving on. Um, <clears throat> this is the feeling. This is the feeling we're going to talk about. <clears throat> this, this feeling of, of regret where you just, you kind of go, go you, you, you're, you're on the line, you go over the line, and then you're, you're saying, oh man, how, how do I... And then there's the guilt that comes in. There's despair that can come in. We think we're like, man, there's that feeling, man, I'm a loser. I'm never going to change. But then there's this opportunity that we have, this opportunity to start over that God gives to us, this thing that's called repentance. You see, repentance is a word that is rarely used, and it gets a negative rap in our culture. But really, repentance is a beautiful word. Repentance in the Greek language uh, is the Greek word metanoia. And the word metanoia is, uh, refers to changing your mind. That you can be going in a certain direction and, and, and you can actually come to your senses. And that was, uh, you know, like in the story of the prodigal son. The, the prodigal son, it says he came to himself. He came to his senses. And that, that is a, uh, in, 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 it's an idiom that refers to someone. It's this moment of metanoia that it's like, I've got to change my direction. I've got to go a different way. In the Jewish culture, it was, the, the word is teshuva. That's the Hebrew word, uh, T-E-S-H-U-V-A. And teshuva literally means, uh, ref, refers to uh, changing your direction and going back on the way that you know to be right. So what can happen is, is that we can go, we know the way that, there's the way that we know to be right, but then we can, we can go our own way, but then we can have this moment of teshuva where we change our mind, but then we actually change our direction and get back on the road that we know to be true. 
In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul would say this. It says, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, I bring all of this up because the story that we're going to look at today and, and the psalm that we're going to look at today is probably the sad, one of the saddest in all of the Bible. It's a story of deceit, murder, adultery, betrayal, and then, of course, a cover-up to boot. And what makes it even worse is that the person behind all of this is none other than King David. And so what I want to do is, because for us to really understand the, the, the psalm, we've got to understand the story behind the psalm. That co- what, what, did it, what is it? What's the feeling? What's the circumstance that causes David to pen these words? And so what I want to do is look at the story, the cover-up, and then look at David's repentance and how God worked in his life. And here's why this is so important is because, listen, if you are human, uh, you're going to have a moment like this in your life. Maybe not to the degree that David did, but you're going to have a, a moment where you just royally mess up. You're going to have a moment where you need God's grace and forgiveness more than ever in your life. And, you know, you, the reason why I think this is so important is that you may be here and someone that you love has walked away from God. And they are just messing up their life with the decisions that they're making. And what this story should give us hope, and here's why, is because it shows us the lengths that God will go to to get us back. You know, you could be in a place where you're here and you feel far from God because you've messed up. And you might think, man, I'm messed up and, and I, you're holding on to all this and it's weighing you down and it's bumming you out and it's, it's messing with your future and how you view life and all this. And listen, th- this story should bring us hope. It should bring us hope because if God can forgive a guy like David, then he certainly can forgive us. So I'm gonna, uh, it's in your, your notes there in, first, in 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm going to read you. This is the beginning of the story that then brings on the cover-up. But check this out. <coughs> Pardon me. <clears throat> he says this. It happened in the spring of the year at the times when kings go to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. And so David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone asked, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her for she was cleansed of her impurity. And she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention. Now, the story could go several different ways. I mean, th- there's, this is so problematic from the beginning. There's the time when kings go to battle. David, you're a king. What are you doing staying at home? This is the time to go to battle, but he decides to stay home. He sees this woman, and he decides that he's going to have this one night of passion with her. And he does, and now she's pregnant. And so he can, this is the moment where he can say, hey, I totally messed up. But David's got a plan. And here's his plan. What he does is, is that he actually sends Joab, who's the commander of the army. And he says, Joab, I want you to send Uriah home. And I want, you, I want him to give me a report on the war. So Uriah comes home. He dines with the king. And then he gives him a report on the war. And he says, all right, Uriah, thank you so much. And I want you to now go home and then we'll send you back tomorrow. So David, uh, so Uriah goes back to his house, 
but he won't go inside. He actually sleeps outside the door. And then David hears about it. Like, what are you doing sleeping outside of your house? You should have gone in, seen your wife, and, you know, did the thing that married couples do. And he's like, well, no, how can I do that? Because I know my countrymen are sleeping on the ground. They're in battle. How can I go and lay next to my wife in our bed? I mean, it's just not, it's not the right thing to do. It really makes you like Uriah. Uh, he's, a, he's a person of integrity. And so that's, so that's what happens. And then, so David now has a new plan. Because what he thought was is that if I could get this guy to now be with his wife, then nine months later they'd have a child. And, so, and then, you know, hey, Uriah, congratulations on your baby. And then, you know, nobody's any the wiser. But that's not how it works. So then he's got to go to a different plan. So David then, if you're not familiar with the story, David writes a letter. He seals it. He gives it to Uriah. And he says, I want you to give this to Joab, who's the, who's the commander. He gives it to Joab. Joab opens it, and it's from David. And he says, David, uh, he says, uh, Joab, I want you to put Uriah in the hottest part of the battle and just make sure that he doesn't come back alive. And so, you know, this is the weird part to me. David knew that Uriah was such a person of integrity that he wouldn't open the letter that he was sent with, which was his own death warrant that he was taking anyway. So, um, so sure enough, that's exactly what happens. The hottest part of the battle comes, and Uriah dies in the battle. And so now David sits back, and he's like, I, he seemingly got away, got away with it. Well, except for there's this one loose end that he didn't tie up. Let me read it to you at the very end of the same uh, 2 Samuel 11. Here's what it says. It says, The wife of Uriah <coughs> heard that her husband was dead, and she mourned for her husband. And, and when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You see, God is not happy with this whole situation. And if you've never noticed, if God ain't happy... Ain't nobody happy. All right? And, and so here's, here's the deal. God decides, instead of just saying, hey, you know, I'm just going to like nuke this guy. God decides I'm going to send David a lifeline and give him an opportunity to turn to Teshuva, to go back. He's on a certain road. Get off of that road and go back on the way that he knows. And so he sends David's good friend, a guy by the name of Nathan, who is the prophet in Israel. He sends Nathan to David to talk to him. And by the way, this is in David's best interest to confess, to just, uh, to, to repent. Because you might think that, wow, man, David must have been so happy because he got away with murder. But see, David was not happy. Uh, because David writes in another psalm, he is absolutely miserable. Let me, this is in, in Psalm 32, referring to the same situation that we're going to read. Listen to what he says. He says, when I kept silent, My bones grew old through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah. Now let me, Selah is a word in Hebrew that we don't even bother translating because it's an an impossible word to fully translate. The best we can do is to use the phrase pause and reflect. That's, That's what Selah means. But I want you to think about what David does here where he talks about when he says, when I, before I confessed my sin, I wasn't happy. I was groaning on the inside. I was miserable. I mean, I couldn't even function without, because of the, all of this, this guilt that I was experiencing. And then he uses that word selah, which is a musical term in Hebrew, which means pause and reflect. It's like, hey, don't just keep reading. Don't just keep singing. 
You've got to stop and really think about this. Reflect on this truth and don't let it get away from you. That David is going to confess. And Psalm 51 is essentially a prayer of repentance. But he is going to experience embarrassment in his life and it's all going to come out. But, but the amazing thing to me is that after David confesses, and there's all kinds of problems and consequences that come into his life, but what David experiences and what he, what he, what he writes about is joy. Not, well, man, my, my life stinks now that I confess. No, 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 here's what he talks about. He talks about the joy that comes from forgiveness and grace. So how does David confess? Well, I put it in your notes. Uh, David, Nathan, God sends Nathan uh, to David. Let me read it to you. It says, the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to David and, and said to him, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. And it ate like one of his own and drank from his cup and lay in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd and prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And so David's anger was greatly aroused against the man and said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have also given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and taken his wife to be your wife. And you've killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you have despised me. And you've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up adversaries against you from your own house. And I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did this secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel, before the sun. And so David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. You see, my friends, this is the background of the psalm that we're going to look at, Psalm 51, and I'm going to invite you to open there if you would. It's the acknowledgement of David's sin where he realizes what he's done and, and that by coming to God, he recognized that this, what brought actual healing and restoration in his life. But I want you to note something before we get into this psalm, and that is David only saw it. He only realized the gravity of what he had done when he saw his sin on somebody else. As Nathan is telling David the story of the rich guy and the poor guy having one lamb and the rich guy taking that guy's lamb and cooking it for this, this stranger that had come. And so you feel David's anger rising and he just explodes saying that the guy should be killed and that the guy should restore fourfold for the lamb. You know what's amazing to me? He doesn't just pull, he's going to restore fourfold, he doesn't just pull that out of the air. That's actually a passage out of the book of Exodus. So, you know, David is guilty of the same sin, and he's actually quoting Bible verses though, about what the guy should do. And it, I put it in your notes in, in Exodus 22, uh, verse 1. He says, if a man steals an ox or sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox 
four sheep for a sheep. You see, so, there's, by the way, there's nothing about the guy dying who stole the sheep. The David just was, you know, he was just, uh, you know, freestyling on that. He's going to restore it, and then, he's gonna, then he should get killed. But there, there's something that happens in us when we see our own sin on somebody else. You ever notice that? That, like, my sin on me looks like it needs to be forgiven. But I see my sin on somebody else, and I think the judgment of God should come on that person. You know, and the same thing as you. You know, your sin, you're like, oh, God, you know, I'm struggling. And then you see it on somebody else. You're like, strike that man down. You know, we, we do that. A I, I, few months ago, I, I was driving my daughter, Mia, who's six. She had, a, she had a, a ballet recital. And we were driving down uh, uh, Flamingo, right over here. And we were getting to Flamingo and Pines, and they were doing some construction. And I'm trying to go west on Pines, so I'm trying to make a right if you can kind of picture that intersection in your mind. And uh, so I'm driving down, but everybody in the turn lane is just not going anywhere. So I go into the next lane, because this, by the way, kids, don't try this at home. And uh, so I drive, I'm in that third lane. I get to the the light, and I actually just make the right from the the, the middle, you know, that lane next to the turn lane. Well, there was a guy, thank you. Uh, (laughs) Apparently we have a traffic cop with us. <clears throat> and so what happens is, is that as I'm making that turn from the middle lane, there's a guy who's actually going straight uh, from that lane. And you ever, I don't know if you've ever cut someone off in your life, but I can trust you, it's nothing compared to what I did to this guy. Uh, this was the worst cutoff in the history of cutting people off from the invention of even the horse and buggy, okay? So... I cut this guy off and, and all, you know, so I, I'm, you know, I make the turn and I, this guy's like, ah, slamming on his brakes. All I can do, you know, I, I give the wave, which as you know, the wave absolves all driving sins. So, you know, I'm telling you, you drive, you do something, you're like, sorry. You ever do one of these? Like, I don't even deserve to touch the wheel. Sorry. You know, one of those. And so, now, the weird part is, is that I make that turn, I give the wave, I, I finally make that turn, and then at the light, waiting at the light, there's a police officer sitting at the light. And that's when I started praying. <laughs> oh, God, I beseech thee. You know, I'm, I'm praying King James, because I know that gets, goes direct. And uh, there's no layover. And I'm like, oh, Lord, we beseech thee according to thy you know, goodness and all that stuff. And and so, and I'm praying, God, it was an accident. Forgive me. We don't need to get the authorities involved. You and me can work this out, please. And so, and so the cop never stops me. And I realize there is a God and I am his favorite. Okay. All right. You know, I say that often. There is a God and I am his favorite. And, um, and so here's what happens. Now, the weird thing is you ever been cut off? You ever, you ever wonder, you ever ever been cut off? And and I don't know about you, but this is like every time I get cut off and I'm like, where's a cop when you need one? Who's going to teach this sorry excuse for a human being a lesson? You know, and, but, but like, if I'm the cutter offer, that's a real term, by the way, Google it. And, uh, you know, now I'm like, Lord, we thank you. You know what I mean? You're doing that. If I, if somebody cuts me off and I'm like, Lord, strike that man down. I even speak it in a British accent too. You know, and, and so, and I'm telling you, you do this, right? And, and, and it's, it's this crazy thing. Why? Because my, once again, my sin on me, God, I'm so sorry, you know? And then you, but you, someone cuts, 
But you see that sin on somebody else and you just want God to kill them on the spot, you know? It's like, it's not my fault. It was of the Lord. It happened right then. It was of the Lord. And so, and so listen, and this is the thing that happens for David to actually come to his senses and realize that this is the work that God is doing. And God is throwing him a lifeline because he's, he's saying, I'm miserable. We read that a moment ago. I'm totally miserable before I confess. So then David brings this guy who tells him the story and he says, I've sinned. By the way, no excuses. I sinned, but I sinned, however, I sinned, but you got to understand it was none of that. It was, I've sinned, period. And that's the background and the backdrop to Psalm 51. And that's where we're going to be as we start reading. Look at what he says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. That you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. And if you pause there and give me your attention, there's three things I want to show you about repentance that are vital. If we're actually going to turn from where we are and turn to God. But here's the first one, and that is this, that repentance brings understanding of God. It brings an understanding of God. Now, I'm, I'm going to start by asking a question. It may not make sense, but you're going to see in a second it'll make sense. Now, um, how many of you, and I'm not talking about like a dollar or two. I mean, I'm talking about like real money, 100, 500, 1,000, whatever. How many, how, many, how many of you have ever had someone come and ask you for money, like to borrow money? Okay, by the way, the rest of you, look around. Look around. These are the people you can ask. All right? No, don't do that. Don't do that. I already took note. Um, and so now I want you to think about this because you may not realize this, but there's a reason. Like, believe it or not, these people were actually paying you a compliment when they came. You might think they were just annoying you, but they were actually paying you a compliment when they asked you. And they asked you because they believed two things. They believed, one, that, you, that they were in a, in, in a moment of need and they needed resources. And they believed, one, that you had the resources to help them. They believed, number two, that you had the resources and that combined with your generosity and that you, not only would you be able to help them, but you would also be willing to help them. You see, this is where we begin with God. David comes to God and look what he's asking for. Have mercy on me, O God, according to what? Your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. David comes to God seeking mercy and forgiveness because he knows God has the resources to forgive and the resources to bless. You see, a lot of times, now this is why it's so important. So too often, we will carry around guilt. We will carry around shame. We will carry around all this stuff on us in our lives. And we'll say, well, why don't you bring that to God? No, 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 God would never forgive me. Well, see, all that proves is that we don't really know who God is. Because if we really would understand who God is, we would understand that it's according to his, that he's got loving kindness and multitude of, of tender mercies to spare. You see, that God doesn't condemn you. And we might think that, oh man, God's gonna condemn me. No, God doesn't condemn you. Just the opposite, God loves you. God loves you and longs to forgive you and restore you. The Bible says, this is a good verse for you to commit to memory in Romans chapter eight, verse one, I put it in your notes. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation. Listen, God does not condemn you. 
If you're a believer here, listen, God does not condemn you. He's forgiven you. He's forgiven you. Let's check this out. God forgives you of the things that you aren't even able to forgive yourself of. God has forgiven you of the things that you might even think are unforgivable. Now, let me, if I can, I just want to take a couple of minutes and drill down on this a little bit deeper if we can. Uh, Because there is a difference between the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we're going to define that, and condemnate and feeling condemned. You see, God doesn't condemn us when we mess up. Satan condemns us. That's a totally different thing. You see, what does God do when we sin? He convicts us. What's the difference? When I feel conviction, David felt conviction. What did he say? I've sinned. And that actually causes him to repent, to call out to God, and it actually restores his relationship with God. Condemnation causes alienation in my relationship with God, that I don't want to come to God because I believe that now God hates me, doesn't love me, doesn't want anything to do with me. And this is, this is, the, this is the important thing to note. Um, the Bible says this in, in uh, Revelation chapter 12, which is in your notes. It says that Satan is the accuser of believers. He's the accuser of believers. He wants you to feel condemned. His goal is for you to think that you're some kind of loser, that God could never use you, that you're worthless, you have no redeeming qualities. That is not God. And if you feel like, man, I, I, somebody's whispering that in my ear, I can promise you that that is not who God is. Why? Because what does conviction do? Conviction, God's conviction, leads to repentance and it leads to, to us seeking change in our lives. Jesus would say it this way in John chapter 16. But in fact, it is best that I go away because if I don't, the advocate won't come. That is the Holy Spirit. And if I do go away, then I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. Righteousness is available because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. And judgment will come because the ruler of this world has already been judged. You see, the the Holy Spirit is going to speak to you in ways that are consistent with who God is. And that is that he's going to convict us, but never condemn us. Why? And does that mean, well, when I sin, should should I feel guilty? Yes, we should. It's a big deal. But that doesn't mean that we should live there. We sh- that guilt, that conviction should lead to us turning from that sin, turning to God, and lead to us now walking with him. You see, Satan wants you to wallow in your guilt, that keep you from ever feeling you could be used by God, and then you kind of like hate yourself and all this. Listen, one, listen, one of the most freeing things you may hear me say is that um, you could be walking around with all this condemnation thinking it's from God. Can I just tell you this? It's not. It's not from him. God wants you to be free of all that stuff. And it begins, that's why David begins his prayer with an understanding of who God is and with his ability to be gracious, to show mercy and to forgive. And not just his ability, but his desire. And look at what happens in verse five. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part, you will make, known, make me know, to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be, be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. If you pause there and give me your attention, here's the second thing I want to show you. If repentance, number one, brings understanding of God, then number two, repent, repentance brings acknowledgement of sin. 
It brings acknowledgement of sin. It's, it's hard to see at first, but David is taking his sin very seriously. And I want, you to, I want to show you where in verse 7, he says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Now, they, that may not mean, mean anything to us, but in a Jewish culture, that was serious business. Because that purge me with hyssop was a reference to Leviticus chapter 14. Now, you might say, for, now, for those of us who don't have Leviticus 14 memorized, what is that all about? Um, Leviticus 13 is what do you do? Basically, it's all the different scenarios. What do you do if you have leprosy? I know it's a chapter you go to many times. But I'm like, man, I have leprosy. Let me go to chapter 13. But here's what chapter 14 is about. Chapter 14 is what does a person do when he is healed of leprosy? And so, by the way, there's, there's no cure for leprosy. We call it Hansen's disease now, but there's no cure for leprosy. But chapter 14 was all about what, what do you do if God does something supernatural and heals someone of leprosy? Then what do you do? And the Bible says that that person is supposed to go to the temple, show themselves to the priest that they've been cleansed, and then the priest would take hyssop, which is a plant, and that they would be anointed with hyssop, and that that would be the ceremonially show that they were clean. So when David says, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Here's what he's doing. He's saying, God, my sin is as serious as leprosy. That's how serious he's taking sin. And throughout the Bible, sin is compared to leprosy. Uh, it starts, you know, leprosy starts out small, under the skin. But, you know, you can't really detect it. It's, it's beneath the surface. But then it grows and it spreads very quickly. And, and a person with it wouldn't, would not immediately... Notice, you know, the first symptom is a deadening of the nerves and the loss of feeling. That's why in the ancient culture, and you can Google this at home. I didn't want to bring pictures and freak people out before lunch. Um, But that's why people who had leprosy were many times very disfigured. Uh, And it wasn't because the leprosy was causing them to lose their limbs or whatever. It's because there was a deadening of the senses and the nerves. And so in in a loss of feeling. So when a leper would burn himself, he wouldn't feel it. When a leper would hit his, hit his thumb with a hammer when he was trying to drive a nail, he wouldn't feel it. Uh, you ever hit your thumb with a hammer before? I did yesterday. And uh, I don't know, if you ever given thanks to God for that? No, you never have. People wonder, what does a pastor say when he hits his thumb with a hammer? He says, ouch, by the way. He says, ouch. And, uh, but, you, but listen, it's a, you may not realize this, but it's a blessing. Why? Because being able to feel, even feel pain, serves as a warning to protect us. Now, let me show you this passage in Ephesians, and there's a, there's a part that I want you to underline in your notes. Here's what it says. He says, So I tell you and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Here's what it says. Having lost all sensitivity. That is a reference to leprosy. They have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge themselves in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. And what happens is, is that the first, this is what happens to us in our lives. The first time we sin, whatever area it is, you sin, oh God, I'm so sorry, forgive me, Lord, please. The second time, you don't feel quite so bad about it. Third time, you barely even think about it until, you know what happens? Just like leprosy, you start losing all sensitivity to the conviction of the Spirit in your life. And we just get used to disobeying God, and we actually become numb to God. 
That's why sin and leprosy are so are always linked. And let me tell you why we take sin, uh, we don't take sin seriously enough. Let me show you a picture if I can. You guys remember this guy? Some of you do. This is my buddy. Remember my buddy? My buddy and me like to climb up a tree. My buddy and me, we're the best friends that could be. My buddy, my buddy, my buddy, my buddy, my buddy and me. My buddy, my play school. And so remember, you remember, you remember my buddy. Some of you do. Some of you are like, who's, who's that guy? Um, now, you might remember my buddy because he looks a lot like this guy. They dress similar. Um, now, I, I kind of have this thing in my mind that my buddy and Chucky were friends in, in elementary school. They, they, they were friends, and, and, then, and then Chucky started dropping acid in high school. And it's like, my buddy was like, I'm sorry, I can't hang out with you anymore. And, uh, and then, you know, Chucky went on to become a murderer, and my buddy's still hanging out, helping people out, climbing trees and whatnot. And, uh, but here's what happens. Can we remove Chucky, by the way? You can leave my buddy. Actually, maybe we can leave. Maybe we take my buddy away, too. Who am I even talking to? Anyway, uh, so... Now, here's what happens, is that sometimes we can take this approach towards sin. We sin and we think, oh, God, you know, sorry about that, buddy. You know, I know it's not that big of a deal because we're pals, right? Right? You're my homeboy, right? I even have the shirt, right? That you're, my, you're my homeboy. You're my DJ, right? You know, you're, you're, right? Like, can I just tell you this? Jesus isn't your homeboy. He's not. He's a holy God who's worthy of our worship who's worthy of our obedience, uh, not our lip service and excuses. And, and listen, um, Jesus, we think, oh, but it's not that big. No, it is a big deal. Listen, Jesus died for the sins that we think aren't that big of a deal. You see, and it's not real repentance until we a- admit and recognize that our sin is serious business. You don't know how serious it is? Listen to what Jesus said. Je- not like, I'm not making this up. You know, this is what Jesus said. If your right eye causes you to sin... Poke it out and throw it away. For it's better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to end up in hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, chop it off, throw it away. Preferably in one of those biohazardous bags. Um, It's better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, before people start buying, you know, like hacksaws, we can just pause for a moment. Um, you know, what is Jesus talking about? Is he talking about self-mutilation? No, because you ever notice if you pop out your right eye, your left eye is just as possible of causing you to sin, right? If you've got a lust problem, having one less eye doesn't actually help your situation, okay? If you say, well, I, I can't stop stealing, so I'm going to chop off my right hand. There's lots of left-handed kleptomaniacs, okay? So we got to fix the root problem. The problem is not hands, Okay? And sorry. And uh, so what is Jesus saying then? He's talking about having a radical approach to sin. So is your TV causing you to sin? Then throw it out. But I've got a 60 inch smart blah, blah, blah. And this flat less that. And I don't want to. Th- okay. Uh, throw it out. Is your computer causing you to sin? Throw it out but I've got a brand new P- Well, if it's a PC, you should throw it out anyway. But, uh, the, you know, sorry, sorry. If you just bought one, just give it a few weeks and uh, you'll know why. And, uh, and anyway, I don't, I don't even have another statement about that. Uh, just, you're just going to find out. Like, why doesn't this thing work anymore? 
And, uh, but listen, if you, your computer's causing you sin, get rid of it. Oh, but, you know, my job is my job that causes me to sin. Okay, then quit and find another job. Oh, but, you know, I've been there for a long time. Okay, well, maybe it was paused with the criminal activity. Well, you know, I can't. i got to make a living. Okay, well, do you want to take a radical approach to this or not? That's what Jesus is saying, is that when it comes to sin, we've got to take a radical approach that sin is not a joke. That's what I'm saying. Like, you know, when we treat Jesus like he's my buddy, we start devaluing what sin really is. You see, when we have a lack of understanding who God is, it causes us to not really acknowledge sin. And that's what, and there has to be both of those things for it to be real repentance. But I want you to see here in the last couple of verses, I want you to see the fruit of real repentance. Look at verse 10. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your, from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall, uh, shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. In verse 17, I have underlined in my Bible. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your pleasure to Zion. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of the righteous, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. And if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the last thing I want to show you. And that is this, is that repentance brings joy and passion. It brings joy and passion. Did you hear the tone of David as he, as he changes? He confesses. And now what is he talking about? God, I want to sing. God, I want to tell people about how good you are. God, I, I, I want people to experience your goodness. I've got joy in my heart again. Because there is a freedom that comes with forgiveness and grace. And too many of us, listen, we walk around with shame. We walk around with guilt. And and I want to tell you something. It's no way to live. You weren't created to be guilt-ridden or filled with shame. God created us to be free. To be filled with love that comes from him, with a godly confidence that comes with knowing God and walking with him. You see, listen to what David would say in Psalm 32, speaking of this very same event after he confesses his sin. He says, many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Do you hear the contrast? That there's this shouting for joy, there's being glad and and rejoicing. It's like, who who wants their life to be filled with nothing but regret and sorrow? And all this weight and baggage that we carry around from things that have happened in the past. Instead, there's mercy and grace and forgiveness available to us that comes from confessing our sin and asking God to forgive us. Listen, and maybe that's the work that God wants to do in us as we spend a couple of moments 
drawing close to him in closing, that maybe there's some stuff, there's all this junk that we carry around, and maybe now is the time that it's our moment to say, God, I'm, I'm releasing all this stuff, and I'm coming to you. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you for loving us. We thank you for how good you are to us. We thank you that you don't leave us in the condition that we're in, but instead, you give us opportunity to come to you, to come back to you, to experience your love, your forgiveness, your tender mercies, God, your grace, which doesn't fail. So God, in these moments, may we come back to you and may we experience the goodness of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Listen, too many of us are living less of a life than we were created to because we're carrying around all this guilt from the past. And you know what happens when we carry around all this guilt from the past is that this thing that happened and and our emotional connection to what happened in the past and the guilt associated with it is actually changing who we are. It's changing how we walk into the future because of what happened in the past because we can't let go of the thing that we're carrying around. And see, my question is, do you want to be released from it? Do you want to be set free from it? I mean, we don't have to live in guilt and shame and everything that we do reminding us of the thing that we did or reminding us of the thing that we should have done or reminding us of the thing that we meant to do but we didn't and now we just, we just can't get over it and this thing is just plaguing us. You see, too often we don't come to God because we think he's gonna judge us or condemn us for what we've done. And listen, here's what I want you to know from the pages of the Bible, Jesus speaking. Most of us know John three sixteen, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. A lot of us don't know John 3, 17, where the Bible says that God did not send his son to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You see, my friend, God doesn't want to judge you. He wants to save you. He wants to forgive you. He wants to love you. He wants to restore you and bless you and give you the life that he created you to live. And there's no reason to walk around with this kind of guilt one second longer. That this can be your moment to come to God and just invite him to forgive you and restore you. Listen, you might be here and you might be a Christian and you're saying, you know, but I know this and then I walked away and now I just feel like it's weird. You feel like it's weird, but God is waiting with open arms to receive you to forgive you, to restore you. And so maybe today is the day that we talk about coming to your senses. And maybe today is the day that we say, you know, I don't want to live like this one more second. I don't want to carry this stuff around one more second. I don't want to walk around feeling guilty my whole life one more second. And that maybe this is your moment where you just invite God to say, God, I want to say goodbye to the guilt. The guilt trip is over and and I'm ending it now. I want to come to you and be forgiven and restored. And listen, here's what I know is that you probably haven't done everything that David did. But in spite of everything that David did, he knew that there was forgiveness available to him. 
And I want to tell you that there's forgiveness available to you. So I'm going to invite everyone in the house to stand if we would as we close. And as we close, I want to give you an opportunity. I want to give you an opportunity to experience this kind of freedom that God gives us. This opportunity to just say, hey, I'm laying aside all of the guilt. I'm laying aside uh, all of the shame that I felt and I'm just letting it go. I don't want to feel like this anymore. I don't want to live this way anymore. But now this can be your opportunity to say, God, I'm coming back to you and I want to experience your love. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to invite you as you're already standing to come forward and meet me here at the base of this platform. And here's what we're going to do. Yeah. God bless you, bro. Come on. God bless you, bro. Come on. Come on. Yeah. That this is your moment to come back to him, to invite him into your life, to say, God, I'm sorry for everything, but I can't carry this anymore. I wasn't created to carry this. Instead, you want to release me of this. God bless you. Come on up. God wants to do a work in your life. He wants to forgive you and restore you. The now is your moment. As the band plays, you come forward. We're going to pray for you. We're going to pray with you. God bless you. And we're going to, you're going to experience God's forgiveness in your life as he transforms your life. God bless you. Come on up. And you see God do the amazing. That this is the day. All the guilt and all that stuff ends. God bless you. Come on up. This is the day that you let all that stuff go. And this is the day, starting today, where there's a new life that God has for you. Come on up. That this is the work that God wants you to do. And if you're ready to embrace it, then now's the time. If you're ready to say goodbye to the old person, now's the time. If you're ready to embrace who God wants you to become, now is the time. This is your moment. George.